From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you the Unconquered Podcast. And you guys will have to excuse me for my voice being pretty limited in this. I've been basically recording almost nonstop for about a week, thanks to uh, online lectures and podcasts and film breakdowns, of which there are several over at the Patreon page. So we're gonna be we're gonna be fighting through voice-wise this whole episode, but we'll survive and we'll get through. This is gonna be the season preview for 2020. I'm going to do the best I can to call what I think is going to happen and uh, give an idea of what to expect, what expectations are reasonable and what expectations may be uh, sort of on the optimistic side and then what the what the bottom end might be. We'll go ahead and start that in just a moment. This show is brought to you by EPR Creations. EPR Creations partners with small businesses for website development and online strategy planning. I partnered with EPR Creations to build the Show the Safeties petition to get ESPN, CBS, and other networks to update the angles they use for televised football. If you want to be able to see the receivers downfield on pass plays, sign the petition at showthesafeties.com. And if you have any need for an improved internet presence or just want to improve your marketing, call EPR Creations or send them an email and let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered Podcast. You'll be glad you did. Information's in the show notes. I've already previewed a lot of the almost anything that you could think about in terms of the offense and the defense coming into this season. Talked about Norvell's offense. We've talked some about uh, Adam Fuller's defense, which again, a lot of things are going to be better on defense just because things are going to be coordinated uh, as in like coordinated, like put together the the various units working in unison. That's going to be a, a big start. On things, I, I will say there are a couple things that I didn't mention though that are worth uh, worth coming in, coming into and, and talking about just a little bit at the beginning here in terms of defense in particular. When I went back and I, I looked at some of the 2019 Memphis games, one of the things that I noticed is that defensively they did give up some plays, particularly early in games. So first quarter performance on defense was not always that great. They uh, they gave up some plays early on. You could see they they gave up a couple big ones against Houston. They gave up a big reverse, and then also a little bit later, another big run against Navy. And then one of the things that I've noticed is that that Fuller and that defensive staff at Memphis did a really good job in terms of adjustments and adjusting to what teams hit them with early. So that's something to keep an eye on in 2020. I wouldn't necessarily expect Florida State's defense to come out and dominate from snap one at different points because from what I can tell, that didn't happen a lot at Memphis. Now, Florida State, obviously better personnel, but they're also playing against better teams. So don't be surprised if you see some teams sort of jump on Florida State with a play or two early this year. But one thing that we will see that'll be different from the last couple of years defensively is I think you're going to see some significant uh, improvement over the course of games as that as the defense sort of clamps down on the offense a little bit more. So that's something that... Uh, Something to notice, something that I noticed, and something to note as we move into the 2020 season. Uh, I, I also want to emphasize that I think actually the biggest and most noticeable difference in 2020, the, the place where I think the most noticeable difference is going to be in 2020 is going to be on special teams. Florida State's been flat out awful on special teams the last two years. Under, under Willie Taggart, Florida State was terrible on special teams. And that makes sense. So this is something that as a coach and talking to other coaches, one of the things that that you can kind of count on is that well-coached teams are good on special teams. That's just it's just a reality. And there are a couple reasons for this. So I, I was a special teams coordinator for a couple of years. Uh, the last last couple of years I coached. And one of the things that 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 teaches you is special teams is like herding cats in a way that no other coaching is. You have to really find a way to get players who otherwise might not be, they might not be bought into your particular unit or to, partic to that particular thing. I mean, players don't, don't dream of being uh, punt coverage guys. <laughs> players don't dream of blocking on, on kick return. That's not what they're, what they're playing for. There's no glory in that. And you're usually dealing with more skill guys on those units who, you know, if you're dealing with a bunch of linemen, well, that that's they're used to the no glory thing. With a lot of these skill guys, you have to sell them on special teams. 
The other thing is that you don't normally, as a special teams coordinator, get a ton of time to work on this stuff. I mean, I'd get like five or 10 minutes in practice to work through, you know, a full unit and work both both uh, strings and try to get different guys in at different positions for contingency. Like, look, if this guy's out, then you're here. Here's what your job would be. And you're doing all of this stuff and you got five or 10 minutes. And so you have to be really organized. You have to, the other thing is that unlike offense where you have, or defense where you have uh, a clear depth chart and you know sort of where guys are and guys have different positions, you have to figure out okay, well, I got a linebacker here, but his backup is a fullback. And then their backup is actually a big wide receiver. You know, there are different things and you have to figure all that out, get those guys to gel together and then get them to learn and execute plays and schemes that are completely different. They don't, there's no same as situation here. These are completely different things and you have to get them to pay attention and, and really put the attention to detail in those periods where they're often not as bought in. So what, one of the things that that means is when you see a team that is, that, that is good on special teams, that is almost certainly an indication that the rest of the team is organized. Special teams are, are a reflection of a team's organization level more than anything else. Now, the other thing that special teams are a reflection of is a team's depth. So if you have a lot of, of, of depth of talent, then you can play some backups on special teams without as much of a, of a cost. So deeper teams tend to be better on special teams. The other thing is that you can use more backups and you can do some special teams work over here while guys are doing some work over here, while starters, for example, are doing work over here. You can do that in, at the college level, for example. In high school, you know, when, when we had a roster, my, my uh, uh, last year coaching, uh, we had a roster of basically 34, 35 active players you're not getting a whole lot of time. Uh, you, you don't have a very long depth chart in terms of being able to work with different players when guys are doing that over there. I mean, it's basically you're working with the whole team all the time. But in college, you you do get that. But the thing is, what, what special teams are is a reflection, like I said, of how organized a coaching staff is. Because you have to make sure, you have to, to get these guys to learn and execute a lot of these different concepts on special teams that are that that demand attention to detail where you're least likely to get attention to detail and you have to manage various units in different ways and make sure that you're doing drills for five or six different things that are all going to help fit together on the defensive side of the foot or on the uh, on the special teams side of the football so, you know, this is, and this is one of those reasons, by the way, why someone like Urban Meyer, who was a wide receiver coach by trade, was also a guy that basically spent, he, he, didn't, he didn't coordinate his own offense ever, but he did spend a lot of time at, uh, overseeing the special teams for his team. And this is one of the reasons why you see Nick Saban put such a, a premium on that. Special teams will lose you a game as fast as anything else in football. A blocked punt, uh, a... a kickoff return for a touchdown, different things like that will change a game so quickly. And, and the thing is, it's the little mistakes on special teams that, that, that change things most of all. And so, you know, being able to make sure that your long snapper is going to be precise on every snap, that your holder is the right guy and he's going to be reliable and that the hold is going to be down and all that timing is going to be right and that your kicker is fundamentally doing what he's supposed to do and that he understands the time frame that that he's managing things as he should. Then you've got, you know, punter, you got to make sure that your punter catches the football reliably every time. You got to make sure that your punter gets it off in the right amount of time every time that he's on this spot he's supposed to be on every time. And then you've got to make sure that your schemes are designed to ensure that all of those guys are protected, that nobody leaks through on, on punt, uh, on punt team. There's, you can't have one guy screws up and all of a sudden you've given up a touchdown, despite the fact that both of your offense and your defensive units are playing well, you just cannot afford mistakes there. And again, that's where you're going to see well-organized teams have the biggest and most obvious advantage is they're going to make fewer mistakes on special teams. And if you combine that with good culture, 
which again is a hallmark of a well-coached team, teams that have good culture, that guys are really bought in and are and really believe in what they're doing, those teams fly around on special teams. So this is a conversation I've had with coaches before. You can you can watch a game and when you're scouting a team, one of the things you want to do, you want you want to watch them on kickoff return or ki- or kickoff coverage that is. Watch a team on kickoff coverage. And you'll get a good sense of the culture of that program. And you can see like, oh, okay, this is going to, and, and I remember the, the head coach I worked for last, like, oh yeah, this is a team. If you hit them in the mouth, they'll, they'll quit. Well, how do you know? Well, look at their, look at their kickoff team. Look at, look at the effort. Look, look at how those guys, look at the attention to detail, the effort, the hitting on kick on kickoff, kickoff team. Those teams that come down and they use kickoff, uh, kickoff team is an opportunity to inflict damage and to and to exert their will on the other team. That's gonna you're gonna have a long afternoon. That's gonna be a physical football game. But you get teams that you know maybe guys are running around blocks a little bit. You know not quite as much attention to detail on some of that. You can hit those teams in the mouth a little bit. You get up on those teams and they'll fold. And I'll give you one guess on which team Florida State's been on that on that front the last couple of years. Florida State's been terrible on special teams. And Mike Norvell, one of the one of the hallmarks of his teams at Memphis was that they were every year they were very good on special teams. Then you add that to having Florida State level athletes, and you've got a Travis J returning punts, back there returning some kicks. And again, Travis J is as good an athlete as Florida State has recruited in years. I mean, you're talking about a freak athlete, fluid, catches the football easily, ev- makes everything look easy. And you put that guy back there returning punts, you put that guy back there returning kicks, and all of a sudden guys believe that that guy can change things. Remember what Greg Reed used to mean to, to, to Jimbo's early teams as a punt returner. You put one guy back there that, that changes the, the mindset of the team, and all of a sudden those guys block just a little harder. They hold on. Well, don't hold, but they they hang on to that block just a little longer because they know if they do, that guy's taken into the barn. I think the place you're going to see Florida State be better this year, the most noticeable improvement, is actually going to be on special teams. Fewer mistakes, fewer fewer just obvious gaffes, a little better coverage units, and then I think you're going to see some returns and some other things that'll be that'll be better. I think you'll see some block kicks as well. So I think overall, that's where you're going to see the biggest difference. So I want to pause for a moment and thank Luis Marquez from Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida. Over 90% of homebuyers search online first these days, so it's critical to make sure your listing stands out with great pictures and video. Lewis is a trained photographer and videographer. Other realtors have hired him to come photograph their listings, and nobody will make your home look better for prospective homebuyers, including smooth, professional walkthrough video. And if you're in the market to buy a home in the greater Jacksonville area, no one will outwork Lewis. He was a manager at the Pickup Publix on Ocala and Tallahassee, so you know he works hard and understands customer service. He'll help you find the right house and make sure every step goes smoothly through closing. Information in the show notes, let him know you heard about him from the Unconquered podcast. So before we get into an evaluation of the schedule itself, uh, one, one last thing I wanted to talk about going into uh, into this is the release of the first depth chart of the preseason. Florida State released that this week, and there were some really encouraging things on there from my perspective. Having already done, having already recorded my previews and all that, I didn't incorporate that into my into my uh, into the offensive and defensive analyses. But there were a few things that were were really noteworthy here. And, and like I said, very encouraging when thinking about how this pertained to, uh, to prospective success for Florida State. The number one thing that stood out to me was Maurice Smith at center and Babyon Johnson at right guard. That really solves something that if you go back to my offensive preview, one of the places that I talked about, uh, you know, I, I'm not real sold on on the right guard position with Brady Scott. I mean, how how physical is he going to be is he going to be there? How well is he going to hold up? There've been some indications in camp that he, again still having some difficulties anchoring and all of that and and finishing blocks. Well, with Baby on Johnson, you have somebody who is the the physicality part of it is not really a question. The physical nature of it is not a question. Never has been. 
but he also doesn't bend super well. And, you know, as a snapper, I had some questions about him at the center position. So, yeah, you know, I, I there were a couple concerns that I had there. And then you put Maurice Smith in. And Smith, those those of you who've watched my breakdowns and, and have heard me in the past uh, year about this, I like Smith a lot. And I, I felt Smith was the, the, the center of the future for Florida State. He moves like a Norvell center. He moves and anchors like what you would want for that. Norvell wants a lot of mobility from his center. They they move the they do more pulling and more moving of offensive linemen around than most offensive systems. And you'd better be able to move if you're his center. And Smith has been a more reliable snapper. And he also, like I said, he's he's a little lighter. He's, you know, just around 290. I think he's listed what 286 on the roster. A uh, little lighter, but in Norvell's offense, that center is more often than not, it's it's all about angles. And it's about it's about being quick enough to handle what's what's happening there. And to me, this move got them better at two positions. Maurice Smith at center is a much better option, in my opinion, and a long-term option. I mean, you're looking at a redshirt freshman. He could start at that position for four years. And five, considering he's going to get this year back. I don't think he's going to play that long, but this guy could be the, this guy could be the center of the future indefinitely for Florida State. I mean, it's really what three three or four more years you could expect him to be there. That's that's you're laying a foundation stone for the future. That's smart, right in the center of your line. Where again, Norvell's system is going to ask a lot from his center. And then you get better at right guard where there were some, again, the question was the physicality of that position. And now you've got maulers on either side of Smith. You've got Lucas and you've got Johnson. Each of them is essentially a mauler. Now, both of those guys are mobile enough to do the pulling and the kick out type stuff that they like to do. So that works. You've got athletes out there at right guard and right tackle. And then you've got an even better athlete and a guy who is a very smart guy in Maurice Smith. So to me, that made that offensive line, you feel better about the interior. I felt like the interior would be okay with Lucas Smith and Johnson if they stay healthy. And that's the group that you get all year at, at, at guard center guard. I think they go from being okay to actually being good on the, inti- on the interior. And yeah, Smith, again, going to need to put on a little bit of weight by the time he's more fully developed. But I think you go from being okay to potentially being above average. I'll just say that. Not necessarily good, but above average from guard center guard. And if you can be above average from guard center guard, that's a uh, that's a huge step forward. And then the question is, can you get average from Washington and Love Taylor? To me, Love Taylor's the big question mark up there. I think Washington has a chance to be decent. But can you be average at left tackle and right tackle? If you can be average there, then wow, all of a sudden the offense is the offense looks different because you're you're above average inside and then you're average on the outside. That 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 adds up to average or a little better on the offensive line. And then all of a sudden the, the schedule looks different. So just that personnel, that makes a big difference. And the other thing is you're going redshirt freshman, sophomore, redshirt freshman, left tackle, left guard, center. Those are three building blocks that you can basically count on to grow the next couple of years. So they're laying the foundation with these guys as well. And then next year you have a couple guys step in, maybe Robert Scott takes over at one of the tackles as a redshirt freshman. And you can, you can start to actually potentially be above average as an offensive line with guys that have actually played and with guys that came in with some talent. So that's a huge thing. That, that was the first thing that stood out. Second thing that stood out was Travis J being all over the all over the depth chart. Starting return man, st- uh, co-starter at both safeties, and I like what they did there in that sense because I mentioned I had some concerns. I mean, is Lars Woodby going to be the right guy in certain cases as a coverage boundary safety? Well, what what do you do in those situations? That's when you throw Travis J out there, and then you have Renardo Green at the other safety, and he can cover like a corner. Or you just have Travis Jay and Jaden Lars would be out there and Jay can cover like a corner and also, you know, basically be a, a safety as well. So you feel pretty good about that. That, that. that also helps solve that problem. 
I was surprised to see Jerry and Jones as the starter at the at, at the one at the boundary corner. Uh, I thought Akeem Dent would get that. I mean, he was a little banged up in camp, but Dent got the oar with Mako Dotson as the backup there. That just shows how good Jerry and Jones has been. Because I mean, that's been a battle for that corner position, and for him to win win that win that job, uh, you got to feel pretty good about that, and feel good about it because you know that Akeem Dent is a talented guy. And for Jones to win that job, you know that he's he's doing something. So that's that's serious. You got the or with uh, Amari Gaynor and Kalen Deloach at the stud. I like that. I think Deloach in a lot of ways fits better what they like to do at that position against certain teams. I think against Georgia Tech, Gaynor is going to get the majority of the run there uh, because of Georgia Tech's, the way that they are not as much of a threat in the passing game. But we'll see how that plays out all year. I also liked what they did in terms of the linebacker position with Jaleel McRae moving to the Will linebacker spot, uh, along with DJ Lundy over there, and then Emmett Rice and Leonard Warner being where we expected. But that allows Stephen Dix to to move into the the backup spot at the Mike backer while you're still keeping McRae in the uh, in a backup role because uh, the Will and the Mike in this defense are are really in, largely in, uh, interchangeable in a lot of respects. So uh, and then the other thing that that stood out defensively is on my preview episode, I'd mentioned that I had some real concerns about the defensive end position behind Kando. And I still do. <laughs> Let's be honest. They don't have another Kando. But I felt like, you know, maybe they should move Quayshon Fuller to that side and and just see if they if he can, you know, because he, he had been listed as the Fox uh, on the roster. I felt like, well, you know, I just, I like Fuller a little better on the other side. Maybe you push him over there and you can get something, something else behind uh, Janarius Robinson on the, on the boundary side at the Fox position, the more of the hybrid. And that's exactly what they did. They put Quayshawn Fuller there. And now you, I feel like you've got, uh, you've got a guy, I think Fuller's probably going to work more as a flex. He's probably the true backup on both sides, but he's, he's a guy by putting him in there as the backup to Kando, you give, you give yourself another big body that can actually work as a, as a, as a true backup at the defensive end spot. So that helps a lot as well. Um, no Hamza Nasiruddin on the roster, uh, listed on the roster at that point out for the opener. It's going to be a little while before he's ready. And then finally, Warren Thompson winning the starting job opposite Tamori and Terry was interesting. It shows that Thompson is starting to live up to that. And I remember, I mean, I, I saw him, uh, in a little bit of practice footage before, and, and was surprised that that was Warren Thompson because of how smoothly he moved. This was last year when I got a chance to see a, a little bit of practice. And I was surprised, like, who is that? And that's, that's Warren Thompson. I mean, I know how big he is, but I didn't realize how uh, quickly, how quick his feet are and how explosive he can be down the field. When he's all together, he's, he's pretty good. Now, he had a bit of the Keith Gavin disease in terms of, uh, of drops. So he's going to have to get that, you know, be really consistent. But with him and Young on one side and then Terry and Wilson on the other, I was a little surprised by how they did that. But again, they're, they're getting a lot of size on the field with those guys. And then, uh, and then Helton in the slot or Helton moving around at the three back. Uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of things that they can, they can get out of that unit. Uh, not as much depth at receiver as you'd like. And hopefully Bolden comes along pretty quickly. But, uh, but basically, that's, that's what you got in terms of the, uh, of the depth chart. And my, my thought on this, the, 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 the final thought that we'll, we'll leave this segment with is I, I left looking at this depth chart feeling like this staff has a good handle on the roster that they have. They, un, they very clearly understand what the strengths and weaknesses of a lot of these guys are. And they've moved guys around to try to maximize that. Just looking at who's next to whom and who they've got here and who they've got there. I think they did a really good job on that. And that suggests that they, they have a better handle on the capacity of their players than the last staff did. Where I, There were times where it was like, I just didn't understand why this guy was lining up here as opposed to there with the last staff. There's not a whole lot to quibble with here. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a quality sign. That's a sign that this staff knows what they've gotten into and they're not going to be over-optimistic about what guys can do when guys really can't do that. So that's, that's a real plus. We'll go ahead and then and get into what, what expectations can be for the schedule. So when I look at this schedule, first of all, it's a good bit harder than it was before the COVID-19 adjustment. But when I look at this schedule, I, I break down the schedule this way. 
And what I did is I ran, you know, I, I ran it through the uh, simplified football formula that I put together with Steve Pointer from uh, the Unconquered Talk podcast now, doing his own podcast over there, uh, the FPI and the SP Plus, and took a look at, you know, what where those formulas agree, where they disagree. And there's it's a range of, of options across those things. But it took a look at those things, also went off of basically what I know of those rosters and coaches and so on. And here's basically what I came out to. Florida State's going to beat Jacksonville State, obviously. And then you've got your probable wins. The wins that Florida State should win those games. Should win those games. But it's not a guarantee that they win those games. So, those games, I basically think there are five of those. That they should win the game, but it's not a guarantee, but it's a, it's, it's a game you should win. And you can argue in this category a little bit, but I think that's NC State at NC State, which given the situation at NC State where that's basically going to be with no fans, that makes that easier. And by the way, for the for the formulas there, the simplified football formula actually has Florida State as an underdog there. And, and again, simplified football has a lot in terms of um, past history that goes into how we, we put that algorithm together. FPI has Florida State as 78%, 77.4% favorite, and SP Plus has a, has a 70% favorite. I actually think Florida State, based on what I know of that NC State team from being up here, I, I think Florida State actually has about an 80% chance of winning that game. So I'm going to differ with my own algorithm here. But I think, I think that that's, a, that's a game that really favors Florida State. Then you got Georgia Tech, the opener. It's an opener. You don't know what to expect. It's a fir- opener with a first-year coach and the worst possible year to be a first-year coach. But the talent level, the talent difference is pretty significant. And Georgia Tech's going to be starting a young quarterback, don't have a whole lot. They're still transitioning from the Paul Johnson offense, and they just don't have the players up front to block Florida State. I just think they're going to have some trouble trouble uh, scoring there. So um, I'll, I'll have my Georgia Tech preview out on Friday of this week. But uh, ultimately, that's a game that Florida State should win. Then you got Pitt. That's going to be a hard-fought game. But again, can Pitt block Florida State? UVA, also a game that Florida State could lose, but you should win that game. You're, you're more than a 50% uh, favorite in that game. I'd say, uh, you know, looking at the formulas, it's 70%, 81%, and 80%. So I think that's, that's that just looking at talent and other things, Florida State should beat Virginia. They wouldn't have last year. They, you know, it's just the way things are. And then at Duke. So that's five games where I think you've got you 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 have to think that based on talent, based on all all those factors, Florida State should win. So that that puts you at six wins if you get all of those. But you maybe assume that one of those probable wins you get knocked off in a you know in a normal season, and with a with a first year head coach, you don't you never know. Then there's the very likely loss. That's Clemson. You're just you're you're going to lose that game most likely. And then to me, you have the, the, the hinge games. These games are the games that really determine the success or failure of the season for Florida State. And that's at Miami, at Notre Dame, North Carolina, and Louisville. Going to be significant de- uh, underdog against, NC, uh, against Notre Dame. All the formulas actually favor Florida State against Miami, interestingly. Or actually, I'm sorry. No, the uh, SP Plus has them as an underdog against Miami. So two of the two of the three have Florida State as a favorite favorite against Miami. They're all over the place here. And then you got Louisville, where again, all the formulas actually suggest that's going to be a really hard game for Florida State. So basically, you've got those four games that last year's crew probably loses all four. If you can split. Those four games at Miami, at Notre Dame, North Carolina, and Louisville. Then I think this is a successful season. If everything basically else, everything else goes to chalk, that that's a that's a pretty successful season. So that's where things go. And if you can win more than if you can win three of those four games, then that's a huge win for Mike Norvell. That's a sign that Florida State's got a, a long term winner. I want to pause for a moment to thank Shenandoah Newsma from Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Shannon has a PhD from UNC and knows how to put that research training to work. And she also takes great pride in not taking a one-size-fits-all approach to real estate. She specializes in customizing strategic options for each client and providing expert guidance through how to think about each option. It's a lot more work, but in the end, Shannon's clients end up way better off. 
My wife and I worked with Shannon a couple years ago and could not recommend her more highly. If you or anyone you know is looking for a realtor in the research triangle, there's no one better. Her information's in the show notes. Tell her you heard about her from the Unconquered podcast. Now, when I go through these games and I, I start to assess where basically Florida State fits in these and, you know, who should, how likely is it that Florida State wins this game? Who should I favor in this game? Got a few basic thoughts here. So, first of all, when I when I think about a game in general, when I'm just handicapping any sort of football game, I, I default to two basic things. The line of scrimmage and the quarterback position. So, if you've got a team that wins the, wins the battle on both lines of scrimmage, so basically one team can't block the other and it can't get pressure or stop the run on the other one, well... The team that's winning the line of scrimmage is going to win that game most of the time, say 80, 90% of the time, if you're winning both lines of scrimmage. And then the other, the other factor is the quarterback position. The team with the better quarterback, the quarterback who plays better, who protects the football and better facilitates playmakers, that team is, again, more likely to win than not. So I look at those two things. And so when I come into this season looking at what Florida State's going to face, my first question, actually, is can, can they block Florida State's defensive line? Can they block Marvin Wilson, Robert Cooper, Fabian Lovett, Corey Durden, Josh Kando? Can they block that group well enough to move the football consistently? And I look at the schedule, and I don't see a whole lot of teams that can do that. I see three teams that probably will have the personnel to be able to match up well enough to say, yeah, they can, they can block them. Florida State's still going to get some plays, but they'll, they'll be able to block them reasonably well enough. So that would be Notre Dame, who is going to have the best offensive line in the conference. They've got basically five, if I remember correctly, five returning starters, and they're all, they're all pretty good players. North Carolina. North Carolina has the most talented offensive line in the conference. A little bit of a weakness at center, in terms of being able to anchor against bigger players. So that if, if I'm Florida State, I, I basically am going to uh, do a lot of zero technique and really focus on trying to run through the run through the center with Marvin Wilson and uh, Cooper and the rest and really put a lot of pressure on him there. But their two guards and their two tackles, super talented. Th those four guys are all probably going to play in the NFL. And then you've got Clemson, who, well, it's Clemson. They've they're, they've basically got they've got one of the best offensive line coaches in the country, and they've done a really good job of just maintaining a decent offensive line there for years. And I see no reason to think that that's going to change this year, even though they've got a few new players up there. The other team that's kind of an interesting one there is Louisville. Louisville has one of the three or four best offensive line coaches in the country, probably. Guy that was at NC State for a few years. Really, really good offensive line coach. They've got a, a quality strength program. They don't have the players that some of these others do in terms of having recruited some guys. But even last year, you saw the indication, all the indications that they were going to be developing an identity as a team that can, that can really block. And that's, that's something that just in that Satterfield system, they're going to be able to block teams. So that's going to be one where that'll be a battle, but I think Florida State's personnel is better. But Really, those four teams are, are teams where you go, yeah, you know, FSU is probably not just going to be in the backfield all game. And three of them match up probably pretty decent there. Then the next question is, can Florida State block their defensive line? And really, you have four teams on that list where you go, eh, Florida State's really going to have a hard time blocking them. Well, they're going to have a hard time blocking everybody. But, you know, this is, this is going to be a real problem. Clemson, obviously, Notre Dame, Miami, and Pitt are the most obvious ones where you go, mm, that's a bad matchup for Florida State's offensive line. So you look at those. And then you've got the quarterbacks where you go, okay, who's going to have a significant advantage over Florida State at quarterback? And again, you go Clemson, North Carolina, Notre Dame, and Miami all have significant advantages over Florida State at quarterback. Louisville and Duke probably around par with Florida State at quarterback. So, you know, you're okay there. And then the rest of the games on the schedule, you go, eh, UVA, give the edge to Blackman. Uh, NC State, definitely give the edge to Blackman. Pitt, give the edge to Blackman. 
you know, you start going down that list, Georgia Tech, give the edge to Blackman. So you, you, the rest of them, you, you give Florida State the edge. So that's how I think of this. As I start to think, okay, can they block Florida State's defensive, uh, defensive line? Can Florida State block their defensive line? And then who's going to have the quarterback edge? And then you kind of work out from there to say, okay, other things like playmakers and other factors uh, come into play. This segment is brought to you by Garage Makeovers, the top-rated garage remodeling company in South Florida, according to Home Advisor and Angie's List. They're licensed and insured and have been serving all of Palm Beach and Broward County since 2005. So if you need painting and drywall work or overhead storage, polyaspartic flooring, cabinets, shelving, slot wall, accessories for anything you have, call Nathan at Garage Makeovers for all of your storage and organizational needs. You'll have the best garage in the neighborhood. Information in the show notes, let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast. So then looking more specifically week by week at this at this schedule, I say, well, you know, you go into Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech actually comes to town and you should win that game. And really, if it hadn't been for the last two years, I'd say, yeah, they're going to win this game. But I think every Florida State, everyone associated with the Florida State program covered it. Fans, people within the program there is still some PTSD from the Virginia Tech game a couple of years ago where you go in and better team, better talent than that Virginia Tech team, but man, did they look unprepared. And knowing that this is a first-year staff in the worst possible year to be, in, to be a first-year staff, you got to wonder, okay, what hiccups are there going to be? What inevitable problems are there going to be just as a result of that? But I just keep coming back to they should win that game. The, the talent differential is significant. They should win the game. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Then you get your then you get your buy. Essentially, you get uh, you get uh, your buy, and you play at Miami. Now, that open week gives you time to fix whatever came up against Georgia Tech. That's huge. That timing is great for Florida State. And then you go to Miami. Now, a couple things about this. One is this is the absolute this is a wrong this is the worst time to play Miami. You do not want to play Miami early in the season. If you're going to play Miami, you want to play Miami later in the season once they've already quit on the year. Early in the year, they they still believe in themselves, they still are hyped up, they still you know, it's it's the closest to Miami you're going to get a Miami team. You want to play Miami later in the season once they've already quit. But they're playing them right up front when Miami's going to be at their strongest. The other thing is that in Rhett Lashley's offense, which I really like, I like Lashley as a coordinator, uh, from actually the same basic uh, tree, offensive tree that Norvell is. So there's a lot of similarities in their offenses, though Lashley is going to, going to run the quarterback a lot more than Norvell. Norvell, a little more on the, pro, on the pro side of things in terms of his approach as opposed to the college side where you're, you're running the quarterback more. Though he'll run the quarterback some. Uh, Lashley runs the heck out of his quarterback, and he's got a quarterback who's undersized, and if he takes a beating, I'm not sure he'll make it through the season. So, you know, that's the other reason you want to play Miami late rather than early. So not only do they have... You know, are they Miami and Miami just quits on the season every year, but they also have a quarterback who, given size, given how much they're they're likely to run him, you want to play him when he's banged up a little bit later in the season. But that's not what they got. They got Miami early. And then the other thing is that COVID-19 is actually probably going to benefit Miami as much as any team. Simply because Miami is really used to playing in empty stadiums. And so you talk about home field advantage. This is probably the best home field advantage Miami could have playing in an empty stadium in a Florida State Miami game. As opposed to a bunch of Florida State fans descend on Hard Rock and basically turn that into Doak Campbell South. So this is a nice edge for Miami. And, and, and it's one that, you know, Miami needs to t take advantage of this all season because other t other programs, teams teams are not familiar with playing in empty stadiums the way that Miami is. And Miami, this is this is like home field. They'll be it's going to be like playing at home all year for Miami. Like they're, they're going to walk into uh, into Clemson or they'll walk into uh, to UNC or wherever else they play. And it's going to be like. This is going to be, this is a home game, guys. This feels like home. So that's, 
again, that, that'll be a little bit of an advantage for Miami coming into that. And, and obviously you've got a team in it set with its coaching staff in its second year. So a little bit different situation, but the place where I think this really helps Florida state is it is the first year in a new offensive system. So they didn't get their spring to, to install that stuff. They've had to do all that. And yeah, there's been a lot of reports that their offense has been tearing it up in camp. And I think a lot of that goes back to Derek King is a really good player, but the truth is that they're still really first year in a new system, as is Florida State. So that does help. That helps mitigate some of that. And quite frankly, I think Miami's going to have a hard time blocking Florida State. I think Florida State's going to have a hard time blocking Miami. And when it comes down to it, I think Norvell and and the and the Florida State staff, the new Florida State staff, I think they're a better staff than what you have at Miami. I think when it comes time for that big special teams play, when it comes time for some of those those other factors when it comes time to prepare for a team that you can't block i like what norvell brings to the table there so this makes this a very winnable game for florida state i think florida state should be favored in this game and i know that there are some others who cover florida state who disagree with me on that but i i think florida state should be favored there and so here's the thing if florida state wins against georgia tech and then goes down to beat miami in uh, you know, really on Miami's turf in the empty stadium, if Florida State is able to start the year 2-0, then look out. Because then you're going to have a confident football team and a team that has a ton of talent. They've just lacked any sort of attention to detail and they've lacked a lot of confidence because they've just not put in the work and earned that confidence. If they start 2-0, look out. Because then you get Jacksonville State, which you can kind of treat as an open date, and then you go to Notre Dame and you got a chance against that Notre Dame team just in terms of the talent you're putting on the field. You're going to have a hard time blocking them and they're going to be better equipped to block you than just about everybody else on the, on the, uh, on the schedule. But at the same point, you still have enough, just enough explosiveness that you'll have, a, you'll have a shooting chance in that game. And that's when you... Uh, and, and again, I'm confident about Norvell understanding how to scheme against a quality defense. That's, that's, that's important here. That's when, after that one, and let's presume that's, that's I think that's a likely loss, then you, play, then you play UNC. And this is another of those hinge games on the year. And UNC this year is a mirror image Florida State. They're going to have an elite offense. I think Florida State potentially has an elite defense. I think... North Carolina, as I already mentioned, North Carolina has probably the most talented offensive line in the country or in, in the con in the conference, not in the country, has, I think, the most talented offensive line in the conference, along with the second best quarterback in the conference and the second best running back in the conference. And one of the two or three most uh, deepest and, and best, most explosive receiving cores in the conference. So they're going to be good across the board on offense. On the other side of the ball, they have some serious holes at defensive line. Very good linebackers. Talented corners. And they're pretty good at safety. So it's sort of like Florida State, where Florida State matches that weak defensive line with the weak offensive line. Matches that super talented offensive line with a super talented defensive line. Matches that really good quarterback with some of the best corners in the conference. And you start going matchup to matchup. And this is strength on strength, weakness on weakness. It's going to be a good football game. So, you know, kind of coin flip that game. Then you got Louisville coming right on the heels of, of UNC. And that's where that, that stretch of three games, back to back to back, that's where the season could either get really good or things could go, go sideways pretty quickly. So you come out of the Miami game, you win against Jacksonville State. And you're 3-0, and and then you lose to Notre Dame, you lose to North Carolina, and then you go into Louisville with your tail between your legs, and mm, it's tough. So I like Florida State more against Louisville than most, though. I don't think last year where, Florida, where Louisville was one of the few games Florida State won was a fluke. And I think the reason is defensive line matters against a team that really wants to run the ball. And I don't think Louisville has a special quarterback like what UNC does or what uh, what Clemson does. So if if they can't just straight up block Florida State, they're gonna have they're gonna have to get some big plays in the passing game to put up numbers 
And this is a game where I think as long as Florida State maintains enough confidence to come into this game where they they still believe, I think Florida State should win this game. But it's a I think you can treat it as almost a coin flip. So those three games back to back to back kind of determine the, the direction of your season, right in the middle of the, of the schedule. Then you got Pitt. And once again, this is a home game and this is coming off of a off of a bye week. You almost wish that the bye week was before Louisville instead of Pitt. But you get a chance for that bye week before before Pitt. And as far as Pitt's concerned, the question is, can they score on FSU? I mean, can they block the defensive line? Who do they have out wide that scares you? They don't have a ton there. But the flip side is, can Florida State block them? Even without their top edge rusher who's, who's sitting out on the year, that, this is going to be a low-scoring game. And again, I think you favor Florida State there. Then at NC State, Marty's talked a little bit about that one. Struggle at quarterback, lack of playmakers. I like Florida State in that game in terms of you know probably about an 80% odds there. Then you got Clemson, maybe 10% odds of beating Clemson. I'm not even going to break that one down at this point. Then you got UVA, and you got to ask the question, what does UVA look like without Bryce Perkins, who was 85, 90% of their offense the last couple of years? But man, UVA is well coached. That's a game where you're not going to be a whole lot better than them in terms of being prepared. They are really well coached. They squeeze every ounce out of that talent. And yeah, they're they're going to be they're going to be they won't beat themselves. They're not a team that's going to just hand the ball to you on special teams, for example. But again, you're more talented than them. And then you wrap up at Duke. And so much by that point of the year is is uncertain. I mean, how how many losses have you taken? How who's out with you know whatever is going on with the virus? All sorts of different things. Duke has a good defensive line, a quality quarterback. Now that Chase Bryce has transferred there. But they just don't have a whole lot of playmakers. And so you feel as long as the mentality is still there, as long as the buy-in is still there, you got to favor Florida State at Duke. So that's the schedule. That's that's kind of how I'm thinking about these various games. And then basically you have to think about how that all breaks down. And you can't just call, oh, I think this one's going to be a win. This one's going to be a win. Therefore, eight and three. That's just not the way this is going to work, especially in a game in, in a year where you know, okay, suddenly you have your entire starting offensive line is out due to COVID-19 or theirs is, or up oh, Trevor Lawrence just got Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne just got COVID-19 along with uh, three of Clemson's best defensive players. All of a sudden that game becomes very winnable. So you just don't know what's going to happen here. But aside from that, we can start to think about this in terms of, of win shares and in terms of, of, you know, percentage odds in each one. With health and a little luck, I think Florida State actually has a chance for a pretty decent season this year and, and a step forward compared to recent years. Based on you know reports out of, out of, out of camp, you know, I, think, I think there's a reasonable chance of that. So for me, when I add all this up, to me, I think Florida State is probably most likely to go 7-4 and four in 2020 with the most likely losses, obviously Clemson, Notre Dame, and then UNC and Miami. I think those are your four most likely losses. I disagree with a lot of the pundits that Louisville is the most is is the fourth most likely loss. I, I think those are your four most likely losses. That doesn't mean that you're going to lose all four. That doesn't mean you're not going to lose a game that you should win. Especially since this, I can't reiterate this enough. This is the worst possible year to be a first-year coach for a team that needed massive culture change, that you're installing completely new systems, all of that stuff. This is the worst time for that. Now, here's, here's the other side to this. If Florida State wins the first two games, I'm, I'm adjusting my win, my win projection up to eight and three. If they beat both Georgia Tech and Miami in the first two games, I think this team gets, gets a dose of confidence that has not been around in Tallahassee in a long time. You think about Florida State's basically not gotten to week two, with, not gotten to week three without a loss in how long? I mean, they haven't gotten to week two without a loss in three years. And they've been out, they've been out of the hunt after after the opener each of the last three years. You just win your opener and all of a sudden players start to believe. You beat Miami after that, and all of a sudden you've got a bunch of players that have a lot of talent that suddenly believe. So if they win those first two games, I'm going from seven and four to eight and three. To me, that's the that's the 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 first hinge. Then you get to the 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 hinged games in the middle of the season at Notre Dame, UNC, and Louisville, 
If you come into those with the confidence of having won those first two, you got a chance. So to me, seven and four, eight and three are the two most likely records in 2020. But don't rule out nine and two. And, you know, if things go badly, if there's, you know, issues with the virus or different things, you, you obviously things could get worse. I mean, I think seven and four would be a, a pretty good year, frankly, for Norvell. That, that would be a good sign. That would be a nice step forward. But I think seven and four, eight and three is probably the most likely set of rate rankings. So, you know, that seven and a half number for win for uh for over under on wins on the season is about right. But the truth is that when you look top to bottom on the roster, Florida State is more talented than every every team that they play except for Clemson. They they have the talent to potentially go tw- go ten and one. But with a first year staff with some holes at specific spots on the roster at tight end and 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 offensive line in particular, and then not a not an elite quarterback to help make up for that, that makes it a lot harder. So you don't expect quite the returns on your overall level of talent that you would otherwise, but it's not out of the question. It's not out of the question. It just shouldn't be expected. So again, like I said, I think seven and four, eight and three area is about right. If they lose one of the first games, then I think it's a seven and four situation. If they lose, if they win, if they go two and zero through through two games, I think you adjust the adjust that uh, expectation up to eight and three or nine and two, because there still is a lot of talent on this team, especially on defense. We'll go ahead and wrap there. This has been the Unconquered Podcast. I'm your host Jason Staples. Thanks for listening. The Unconquered Podcast is brought to you by EPR Creations, Lewis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Newsma of Keller Williams Realty in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Garage Makeovers of Palm Beach and Broward County, and the Unconquered Podcast Shop, which features stickers, magnets, and other Seminole gear. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts, post us on social media, and tell a friend. Thanks also to those supporters over at Patreon, where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast from supporters. Special thanks to those above the bleach numbers level. That is Keith Cheney, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Andrew Garrett, Brian Leninger, Travis Smith, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. I made this. <laughs>